tax day is coming. Oh, no. But if you sign up for Robinhood Gold's IRA with a 3% match, you can get up to $195 for the 2023 tax year. Oh, yeah. Sign up at Robinhood.com slash boost by tax day to get the biggest contribution match on the market. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Robinhood Financial LLC, member SIPC. You've tuned in to Columbia Calling, your first stop for everything you want to know about Columbia. How and where to invest, where to visit. From the Pacific to the Caribbean, the Andes Mountains to the Amazon jungle, Columbia has a slice of everything. Shooting from the hip, answering the questions that need answering. Here's your host, the journalist and hotelier, Richard McCall, shedding some light on the fashionable South American destination of Colombia. It's that time of the week again, folks. This is me, your host, Richard McCall, here in Bogota, Colombia, 2,600 meters closer to the stars. And this is episode 413 of the Columbia Calling podcast. Thank you to everyone out there that tuned in to episode 412 with Juan Papier of Human Rights Watch and his intervention with us, really, talking about the need for comprehensive police reform here in Colombia, amongst other things, of course, as well. Uh, and I keep saying it every week, we're on a real run of great shows, of great interviewees, and this week is no less the case. We're talking to PhD Hannah Mizaros Martin. She's in New York, but she got a PhD from Goldsmiths University in London, and indeed uh, at, in forensic architecture. And forensic architecture is what we will be discussing today. Now, if you're like me, you perhaps didn't know exactly what forensic architecture is. But we discover in this episode that it's a way at investigating and delving deeper into research, perhaps about, well, I would say, I want to say unsolved crimes or things that, that need further, uh, you know, that, that require further investigations. And there are three or four things that uh, uh, that forensic architecture the uh, the entity has looked into here in Colombia one being uraba and land dispossession another being the nucac people in guaviare uh, another being the siege the taking of the palacio de justicia the justice palace in 1985 by the m19 guerrillas and then finally the killing of lucas villa the demonstrator in the paro nacional uh, protests in Pereira in 2021. Now, for those of you who are Patreons, that's patreon.com forward slash Columbia Calling, or supporters on Kofi, ko-fi forward slash Columbia Calling, you will get exclusive access to this segment on Lucas Villa. So the final segment of the show, we're giving you a bonus segment for being you know such great supporters so thank you this is our thank you so of course what we'll do now hand over to emily hart who will be reporting the news as always then we'll be back with segment three which will be the main body of the interview with hannah mazaros martin and then for those of you on patreon and kofi you will have a link on those platforms to listen to the, f the final segment with hannah mazaros martin discussing about the killing of uh, Lucas Villa in Pereira. So that's us this week. Next week, Emily Hart will be taking over again as we'll start divvying up the responsibilities. And she's got some great people lined up as well from her end in Medellin. So thank you for listening and don't go away. I'm Emily Hart and these are your top stories for the week of February 21st, 2022. In a historic ruling, the Colombian Constitutional Court has decided to decriminalise abortion up to the 24th week of pregnancy, with five votes in favour and four against. Causa Justa, a group of organisations, had asked the court a year and a half ago to put an end to the criminal prosecution of women for having abortions, cases which amounted to around 400 per year, with sentences ranging from 16 to 54 months in prison. The ruling puts Colombia at the forefront of Latin America in terms of sexual and reproductive rights, 
but it is not the end of the road for feminist groups, who seek to guarantee the right to safe and legal abortion, as well as to decriminalise pregnancy termination entirely. It is estimated that currently there are more than 400,000 abortions performed each year in Colombia, and that less than 10% of those procedures are performed legally. The latest Invermare poll, which measures the mood of Colombians every two months, reports that 85% of Colombians believe that things are, in general, getting worse. 93% believe that insecurity is worsening. This comes after a wave of violence in Arauca and several attacks against the security forces already this year. Meanwhile, the HEP, Colombia's Transitional Justice Tribunal, reports that the armed conflict reactivated in 12 areas of the country last year. 2021 was the year with the highest number of massacres and forced displacements since the signing of the peace agreement with the FARC guerrilla group in 2016, as well as seeing a marked increase in cases of forced recruitment of children and adolescents. In addition, the UN has reported that 74,000 people were displaced from their homes across Colombia last year, more than double the number from the previous year. Of those affected, more than 53,000 remain displaced, the majority of whom do not have access to adequate housing, food, drinking water or health services. At least 66,000 people were forced to remain indoors due to the presence and operation of armed groups last year. The HEP Tribunal have also opened three new cases to look thematically into crimes committed during Colombia's civil conflict. These cases, known as macro cases, will investigate crimes committed by the now-defunct FARC guerrillas at national level, crimes committed by the security forces and agents of the state, both in isolation and alliance with paramilitaries, and crimes committed against ethnic communities. Meanwhile, another of Colombia's peace institutions faces unprecedented challenges, as last Friday, criminals broke into the home of a Truth Commission in investigator and stole files with witness testimony. The files were recordings of statements by Dairo Antonio Usuga, alias Otoniel, formerly the commander of the Clan del Golfo, Colombia's most powerful armed group, who was captured in October last year after a decade-long pursuit and a total of 132 warrants issued for his arrest. Usuga had announced his intention to collaborate with the justice system and denounce high-ranking military officials. With decades of involvement in Colombia's armed conflict, he can provide detailed information on what the commission has called the web of responsibilities, which includes businessmen, the political class, third parties, the security forces and drug trafficking groups. This theft, whose perpetrators remain unidentified, follows a string of difficulties and obstacles, as well as direct intimidation of those trying to take testimony from Usuga. Though the Truth Commission has said that only the hardware was stolen and that there are backup files, the United Nations High Commissioner for Human Rights has called on the Colombian authorities to adopt immediate and urgent measures. Usuga also currently awaits extradition to the USA, where he will be tried for drug offences. General Hernando Herrera Diaz has been removed from his post over collaboration with drug trafficking organization Los Posillos, putatively an alliance formed to aid the fight against the Gentil Duarte dissident FARC group in Cauca. The decision follows audios revealed by Cambio magazine and Noticias Uno, which reveal his relationship with the criminal group. His case will now be transferred to the Attorney General's office. Also this week, the media revealed evidence that incriminates retired General Leonardo Barrero, former commander of the armed forces, of being alias El Padrino, a member of the drug trafficking organization La Cordillera, which operates in Nariño and works for the Clan del Golfo. Gross domestic product expanded 10.6% in 2021, the nation's statistic agency reported on Tuesday. That's the fastest pace since at least 1906, according to data compiled by the central bank. 
However, Colombia's central bank will need to act quickly in the first half of this year to manage inflation, the IMF has warned. Annual inflation accelerated to 6.9% in January, more than double the central bank's 3% inflation target. Meanwhile, the rates of poverty and unemployment are still stuck well above pre-pandemic levels. And the fourth peak of coronavirus continues to fade. New daily cases are now at around 3,500, down from 30,000 in mid-January. 80% of Colombians have now had at least one dose of vaccine, around 65% are fully vaccinated. More than 15% have also had a booster injection. Those were your top stories for this week. Thanks for listening. And we're back. This is segment three of the Columbia Calling Podcast, episode 413. I'm Richard McCall here in Bogota, Colombia, and my very special guest is Hannah Mazaros Martin. Uh, she's in New York, holds a PhD in research architecture from the University of Goldsmiths, that's in uh, London. And we're going to talk about something that's so very, well, foreign to me, and I've been reading up on it, obviously. Uh, in the last couple of weeks since we organized this conversation. Uh, it's called Forensic Architecture. So, Hannah, welcome on the Columbia Calling podcast. Thank you for having me. It's yeah. great to be It's a real pleasure because this is something that's just so very interesting. And now I have seen, and I, I didn't know that I'd seen your work, but now I know it's your work, the Forensic Architecture, on pages like Bellingcat and so on. And forensic architecture is a way of investigating. And I think a lot of your, your, your basis is, is to pursue human rights abuses and to unearth and to reveal uh, certain things. So perhaps before I get muddled up, we could talk about what forensic architecture is. Yeah, no, no problem. Um, so forensic architecture, as it was kind of originally conceived, um, is really using the discipline of architecture as, as kind of a methodology to inquire about, well, in the case, you know, in our current um, instance, it's, it's mainly about crimes, about human rights violations, uh, environmental crime as well. And what do I mean by, you know, using architecture as a discipline? It's not just, you know, using, um, you know, the kind of idea of the built environment or architectural skills, which we, we definitely do use. Um, it's also your approach towards um, a subject matter. So architecturally speaking, that's kind of using a multidisciplinary lens. It's kind of bringing very many different fields, very many different kinds of expertise into, um, into your investigation in order to unfold it. And it's also, it's also, you know, including not only different fields of expertise, but also different scales and perspectives um, while you're, you, you know, you're looking at a particular um, incidents. So, you know, forensic architecture started in um, 2010, 2011 with an ERC grant. Um, and, you know, it originally kind of was founded um, as a more academic project. Um, it was a group of also PhD students, um, master's students, uh, A.L. Wiseman, Susan Shupley, um, who were, you know, directing it um at that moment in time and it was it was a group of also very multidisciplinary people coming together artists architects filmmakers um political scientists lawyers curators um so i think that this kind of spirit also became infused um in the work um and in our approach also to to issues you know since then it's it's basically developed into um, more of an agency um, in which, you know, we have a core team of people who work in the office in London and um, we take on cases that are often solicited. Um, you know, those could be from 
victims' families uh, or human rights NGOs um, or lawyers um, as well. So it's really a variety. Um, but yeah, the, I would say that forensic architecture as a, as a discipline, as a field, and as a practice has evolved a lot in the last 10 years. Um, and yeah, I hope that's clear. <laughs> so, okay, so we're, we're, it's an investigative body almost, and you said it's kind of multidisciplinary. So tell us a little bit about the disciplines, because we're going to get into this a bit more. Because for my listeners out there, there are, well, I know of three, but I now have been informed that there are four studies that have been done, investigations by forensic architecture, the entity in Goldsmiths and there in New York and so on, uh, here in Colombia. I mean, obviously, incredibly relevant to Colombia. So what are these different disciplines? I mean, you talked about the, sort of the, the built environment, which we would assume with the word architecture, but w- what else? So... The disciplines that were <clears throat> like of the individuals involved, um, we're often coming from an architectural background. Um, I'm coming from a uh, fine art and filmmaking background. Um, we have um, uh, graphic designers, um, we have computer programmers, um, animators. Who, um, increasingly, we have a lot of animators who are working with us. Um, and you know, I think also because there is an academic aspect to this, you know, there's there's a master's program, PhD program um, within Goldsmiths. You know, you, you also have people coming from, you know, different um, academic backgrounds into the program. And I think the thing that, you know, unifies, um, you know, that aspect of the work is that every, every um, person has their practice. And their practice, um, I mean, like a, a visual practice and a visual practice of investigation. So again, this this kind of um, manner of investigation um, found its way into into what FA is now. Um, and you know the the ways in which we kind of approach a case um, depend a lot on the kind of visual material we have available. And so that that will um, basically inform kind of fields might get involved with a case, right? So if we have a case which um, is, let's say, about um, mass ecological destruction, and we know we kind of need um, a very large scale perspective, and we, we decide to work with satellite imagery for, for analysis, then we would get our, our collaborators that we, we normally work with, um, remote sensing scientists involved. Um, and, you know, that's that's just one example. We've also worked with fluid uh, dynamic specialists. Um, we have worked with um, a very wide variety of human rights um, lawyers and you know, judges who basically also helped us along with cases. So it really depends on the nature of the case. Fascinating. Did you ever think, as a personal question, uh, with a fine art background, you'd see yourself sort of ten years on in in this in this role, investigating kind of human rights abuses and so on? Um, I mean, I I, I think I found um, forensic architecture, research architecture, um, pretty early on <laughs> in my in my adult life. I mean, I. I came out of art school and um, went to Palestine uh, where I studied Arabic and I worked um, with some grassroots organizations and that's where I met AL and that's where I discovered um, what research architecture was. I also had um, some Palestinian friends who had done the program. So um, they also directed me, um, you know, to, to the work because I think, Myself, like, I mean, actually everyone who finds themselves in research architecture and forensic architecture, you know, we, you kind of find yourself dissatisfied with the field that you're in a little bit because you, you don't feel like it's, it's doing what you want it to do. Um, and, you know, it, we kind of joke that, you know, FA finds a lot of dis- disgruntled artists and architects in it. Um, and it's true. Um, it, it kind of, you know, we all, we all end up in this space because we, we, 
we might like our, our visual practice, but we, but we want to use it for something else. Um, so I kind of entered, um, you know, research architecture when I was 24. So I have been, I've been here for a while. But it's great. Now, it's, I mean, it's kind of refreshing to hear that you're able to the, apply these things. And of course, you found uh, forensic architecture, research architecture so, so soon, because, you know, a lot of us are kind of uh, would be would be sort of treading water looking for that next thing. But, you know, your trip to Palestine and so on, obviously, it, you know, influenced you massively and you met other people who are involved. You met Ayal. I think we need to. I, it's it's a fascinating subject, and I think we need to let's say let's illustrate exactly what you are doing in this entity with regards to Colombia. You have revealed, or you have undertaken investigations that take in the zone of Uraba, so right up there, so kind of between Panama and the the, the Gulf on the Caribbean side, Uraba, very contentious area, lots of problems, deforestation. Uh, We've had uh, people on talking about it uh, and so on. Of course, the Clan del Golfo, uh, you you name it. It's happened up there. You've also studied the Palacio de Justicia, the taking or la toma of the Palacio de Justicia and more about that in a second. You've also done an investigation into the killing of of Lucas Villa, who people who listen to this uh, podcast and are Colombia followers will know, Lucas Villa was a, a is was a um, he was demonstrating in Pereira in the uh, in the Paro Nacional demonstrations last year, 2021. He was uh, you know he's like an artist or a performer. Uh, I think he was playing a trumpet or, or some sort of musical instrument, and then ended up uh, appeared uh, dead later. And of you guys have investigated his death, and I understand as well that you have done an investigation into the Nukak people, who are in, in, you know an Aboriginal group from Guaviare. So if you take Bogota, and then you've got Meta below Bogota, and then you've got Guaviare, that department below it, one of the most incredible departments, but of course a huge coca growing area, a huge area for deforestation, palm oil, and the like. I did a story many many years ago about the displacement of the Nukak. So you have really delved and, and dived into sort of, let's say, these investigations in Colombia. I'm, I'm curious to start with is how, how do you choose an investigation like this? So we um, were approached by, um, by the Truth Commission in 2000 and, um, sorry, I'm losing my years a little bit, 2008, the end, the end of 2018, when the Truth Commission was actually um, started. Um, you know, after, of course, the, the peace agreement, um, the transitional justice framework was established and, um, you know, these institutions, the HEP, the Truth Commission and the Unidad de Busquia were, um, were made. Um, so, yeah, we were approached pretty, pretty quickly, actually. I think it was in um, November, December of that year. And we started to work, um, we started to work in, March. Um, I had just finished my PhD um, and handed it in in January, and I started to the project in March. And, and really, um, this the, the these these particular projects were chosen by the by the Truth Commission. I mean, normally in in um, in FA. I mean, you know, we, we sometimes choose our cases, but I, I think like, you know, increasingly also because this is a, you know, um, a group that is working on, on contracts, like the, the cases are, are somehow yeah brought for us. Um, but what happened when um, the commissioner Alejandro Valencia uh, approached us and he, he kind of suggested to me, um, you know, that we look at um, land dispossession, uh, the Palacio, and then a case of indigenous um, violence as well. Uh, we, you know, I, I kind of was 
also from my background and working in Colombia, I was I was horrified. <laughs> it's like this is a massive undertaking. Um, and I mean, I, I kind of felt like that with actually all of those suggestions, like one, even like one project was a, already a massive undertaking and he wanted to do three, um, you know, but somehow, uh, we, we, we kept going and we, we did it. So we, we started with the case, um, in Ottawa, um, you know, it, he had already kind of um, imagined this this one particular area called Nueva Colonia um, for us to work in because it's a very paradigmatic um, site of different forms of land dispossession. Um, again, when when I heard that we were working going to work in Ottawa on this issue, I was I was very <laughs> intimidated just because. Um, a lot, you know, as you're aware, there's been a lot of research about land dispossession in Ottawa, and um, you know, for us to enter into these discussions um, that have been, you know, very long-standing in Colombia is is a big task to take on, and also to to give it a new um, to give it a new look, to give it a new um, you know angle in its research is was you know extremely difficult. <laughs> um, so that that was you know the first kind of case we took on. And the Palacio case, as you might imagine, um, was also very politically complicated. So we also didn't have the full, like, you know, go ahead, um, I would say, uh, for about a year or so um, into the project. So we, we really started investigating the Palacio in earnest in 2020, in the summer of 2020. Um, and then the Newcock case was the final case that came to us that, you know, obtained its approval. And because it, um, it didn't get its approval until quite late, we, we had to make a smaller, more modest project, which um, is on view in the Banco de la Repubblica right now um, in the entrance hallway. Which I have not been to. And it's on until June. So you guys have got it like this exhibition on until June, right? Yes, so the the Banco is yeah very kindly hosting this exhibition for us um, until the end of June at this point. Okay, so get on. Now let, let's let's delve in a little bit more then. I, and the intimidation around Urabá and working there, I can understand entirely. I went up many years ago to write a story up in Necocli, and and felt the aggression, and I know I was followed and. I just, I, you know, it was, it was pretty hairy, but you were way out there. If you're in Nueva Colonia and those areas, what exactly was the investigation you were doing? So the commission had, um, you know, their invested interest in this case was to look at the issue of land dispossession. And, um, you know, as you're, as you're probably aware, um, the Orova has had mass land dispossession um, especially throughout the 1990s when, um, you know, paramilitaries were really uh, developing and transforming the region, um, you know, basically fueled by ma- this mass land dispossession, which also often had, uh, you know, armed violence behind it, massacres, um, assassinations, um, you know, of course, the political genocide of the Ope party um, there. So, you know, we we were we were entering into this this region with, you know, um, at least as I was saying, like decades also of of you know scholars and different NGOs having done, you know, a lot of research into the dynamics of political violence um, in the area, and so you know we we didn't we didn't want to repeat this work because also the tr- the truth commission is is meant to be you know providing new insights, right, into the armed conflict. Um, and so, you know, when we when we looked at, you know, we, we visited um, Nueva Colonia, which is um, for, for kind of your geographical references in between, um, you know, you have the Turbo municipality um, to the north and you have Apartado to the south. Um, and this, this um, particular Corgimiento is, um, which is like a collection, let's say, of of small villages. It's a rural, it's a rural area. Um, is 
sandwiched in between the main road, which kind of runs from Apatero to, to Thurbo, um, and the coast. So this is, you know, an area which also, geographically speaking, within the country is very significant because this is a port zone. Um, this is a port zone of legal commerce, um, that being predominantly bananas um, here, but also uh, illegal commerce. Um, this is a massive, massive um, export zone of cocaine. So, you know, drugs will come down from the mountains um, and, you know, they're, they're kind of funneled through this area um, to the coast um, and then brought to, to boats that kind of wait in the Gulf. Um, so, you know, in, ter in terms of its strategic positioning, um, this area has been significant for, for decades. And, um, you know, the, the campesino communities that we were, were working with have basically been in the midst of all these different dynamics, financial interests, um, which are circling around them. And, and yes, as you were saying at the beginning, um, of the podcast right now, uh, the predominant group in the area is the Calan del Golfo. Um, and, you know, they are met very much in control of this region um, at this moment. And, and your investigation was to show the displacement uh, over a period of time. So uh, land dispossession is, is a bit different than displacement. I mean, display, uh, displacement doesn't always result in dispossession, right? So you can be displaced displaced from your um, home, uh, but some people are not dispossessed. Dis dispossession is, is about the, you know, the, the acquiring of the property, um, which is done in this um, region through a variety of very, um, let's say some, somehow sneaky and often violent um, mechanisms, both like legally speaking, bureaucratically speaking, um, again, sometimes via physical threats, um, but also as we found out through um, environmental um, mechanisms. So the, the, the way that we started to look at this case was actually more through the lens of what um, you could read through, um, through the ground, through the earth. And the, the way that we kind of arrived at that was, you know, also through the very issue of how land possession evidences itself in the earth. So, or evidence itself anyway, right? So, you know, you're looking at an area where um, this is, uh, you know, mass banana monoculture. And, you know, in the midst of this banana monoculture, you have um, campesino communities that are growing plantains, predominantly plantains and subsistence crops. So, you know, kind of approaching this issue also um, using my background, my, I mean, my whole, my whole research in, in Colombia is about environmental violence of aerial fumigation and, you know, subsequent displacement um, and land abandonment um, patterns that, that occur. So I kind of used um, that background to approach this issue um, and to really focus on the physical changes that you could see in the earth via, you know, a long history of dispossession. So, you know, for us, it was more um, of certain um, forms of life that started to become the evidence that dispossession had occurred. So I'll give you an example. In the village of California, which um, was a village that was formed via um, something called a toma de tierra, which is a land uh, takeover, a very popular form of um, resistance that you know started in, I think, the 70s in Colombia. Um, you know, it was very popular in agrarian movements, um, you know, and, and these, these um, tomas basically occurred in land that had often been abandoned or, um, you know, was under misuse by large landowners. And, you know, this is what happened in Nueva Colonia. So, you know, in the early 80s, um, 
you know, you, you, you found this area basically in, you know, kind of largely, uh, disuse, like there, there was a lot of, you know, it, it was, it was owned by these large landowners, um, supposedly, but, you know, they didn't really use it for much. There was some cattle, um, the banana, um, industry hadn't really begun in earnest on the coastline. So when landless campesinos, um, came together also, you know, with the help of the, of unions, of the guerrilla, that which was at this point the EPL, um, you know they they kind of organized and took took over plots of land that was disused. So California was one of those plots, um, and California was very unique because actually it was a disused plot of land in the midst of banana fields. So. Um, campesinos came in in 1983-84 and started to plant subsistence crops and you know and make their livelihoods um, from plantain uh, in that space so how do you start to see this in the actual structures of the earth right um, to do that we we obtained um, historical aerial imagery of the region um, we, we did that with the uh, Augustine Colazzi Institute. Um, and, you know, for, for those of you who work in Colombia, uh, they have a massive aerial photography um, archive of many different regions in Colombia. Um, I have to say sometimes it's uh, maybe uh, they're, there's, they're not evenly um, represented, uh, actually, I was quite surprised in Oroba, um, being such a politically important region, um, that they did not have a larger um, aerial archive. Um, so we basically we obtained what we could of of this area, and you know we did obtain um, images of 1983 when the tomas were just sort starting to happen, um, and of the late 80s when these communities were established and actually. Um, you know, political violence in the region was starting to really pick up. The massacres were beginning and, and the paramilitaries had arrived. So, you know, even looking at the aerial archive like this, you can start to see these transformations, right? So we, we looked for the traces of, you know, the houses of the subsistence crops being planted, um, you know, of roads or paths being built, um, which you can see, um, this analysis all in our in our films. Um, this particular film that I'm talking about is called California. Um, and you can kind of see these, these little traces of campesino life starting to develop. And then um, when we kind of fast forward in our um, story and you know the the campesinos had been there um, basically for um, you know this is now fast forwarding to the late 90s. Um, uh, you know, they, they started to receive um, physical threats. Um, and one very powerful uh, person in particular uh, named Felipe Echeverri um, came to their community um, with some paramilitary um, backup and, you know, basically told them, you know, if they didn't sell the land, um, you know, he would, well, he put a gun on the table. That's the, that's the story. Um, so they, that from that moment on, they were, it was forced sale, which is also a form of dispossession. Uh, and they were kicked off their, their land. Eventually, a lot of people could not pay. Um, and they were, you know, forced into bankruptcy. They had to move. And so, you know, looking at this process, you know, through, um, aerial imagery, you can, you can also start to see this. You can start to see the plots of land that are, um, abandoned that are being left behind because they actually once they they left um the large-scale banana monoculture moved in from the sides so you can start to see the bananas um erase the traces of um the campesinos who had lived there and so this 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 issue um or this theme of, of erasure um disappearance basically found its way into all of our cases, obviously, including the Palacio in another form. Um, but in but in the case of Oraba, our our angle of, of erasure 
was really, um, you know, to do with the issue of land dispossession and what what basically gets erased when um, when campesinos are displaced from their land. Um, Incredible, truly. And to see the, I'm seeing, you know, the use of the land over time revealing what is happening politically in a region. That's, I, I, you know, as you said, it has been academically studied to death up there, but you, your, your emphasis has been to look at it a different way. Yes, precisely. So we, we kind of, you know, in, in most FA projects, you, you kind of come up with a proposal with the key concepts and then you develop the methods from that. So one of our concepts that we were bringing forward in this is what we call the, the memory of the earth. And so the memory of the earth became also the method um, as well. And so that um, also informed, I, I should also say, when we, we say the memory of the earth, we do not exclude humans from that memory, because of course, we are also a part of the environment. Um, so this, this actually became a method of inquiry, of storytelling, and also seeing as well. So we didn't just use the aerial perspective. Um, we also know that you know environmental violence also manifests itself in much smaller, more detailed scales, um, and of course, you know, violent events or political violence are, is not excluded from that memory either, right? So um, a big method that we um, used in this was situated testimony, which is um, a technique of um, taking interviews whereby the interviewee sits with a modeler, a 3D modeler, and... Um, you know, in, in older FA cases, this would be, you know, typically a, a witness sitting and retelling a, a violent event like a drone attack. Um, or, you know, we have a, we have a case also about um, a migrant, um, you know, vi- violence on the borders with, with migrants in, in Europe, um, which we also use situated testimony for. We've, we've used it in a lot of cases, actually, um, in FA but you know, for for this particular case, um, I I looked at you know the method, and I thought that this wasn't just about um, sitting with a witness to retell a violent event, because of course, land dispossession is a result of many different kinds of dynamics, um, and the point actually of of you know sitting with with these campesinos had who had like experienced decades of the, these multiple forms of violence was actually to um, get them to, uh, you know, really infuse their, their expertise um, into the stories that we wanted to tell, um, you know, graphically in the, in, in our 3d space, in the space of the, of the films. Right. So when we sat with the with the campesinos, we we mainly focused around the construction of their farms, um, and the real um, kind of idea behind reconstructing the development of their farms with them is that the farm, as a space, as a structure, as like um, you know not just a structure, also a way of life of um, of ideology, is also the the ground that is contested, right? And that's also the ground that is threatened and is also disappearing. So we sat with campesinos who, you know, had managed to, you know, persevere through all these, you know, different dynamics and were still living there in their land. Um, We spoke to campesinos who had been dispossessed and would maybe move to another place. Um, We had, we spoke to campesinos that were dispossessed entirely. Um, You know, it's really a varying state, um, that you find people in. Um, and, you know, we also spoke to communities that were still fighting in the land restitution courts um, to get their land back. So, you know, we, we, we sat with them and we, we worked in this 3D environment, which um, is actually a video game engine called Unreal. Um, you know, and, and in this environment, um, in this platform, uh, we were able to, you know, basically narrate different events um, with their, you know, very specific experiences. And they also helped us construct the environment. So, you know, 
because they're the ones who know best, like the the plants that are there, the you know the shape and form of the different um, canals that basically define the entire structure of the area. Um, you know, they they really helped us build this space, um, and also were able to tell us like the political significance of why you know it was so important for us to um, build, for example, a canal to the exact measurements you know that they described because those exact measurements um basically determine whether or not they can stay in an area because you know if the if a canal is not deep enough there um the water will come and it will flood their fields and it will kill their fields and they will have to sell and leave so all these very tiny details basically became infused in this space and that's um you know unreal is it's a navigable space um, you know, people, it's also an open space. Um, and we, we, um, you know, you have the possibility of, of kind of sharing it and everything, which is great. Um, but what we've done with it at the moment is to, um, make, you know, three films that are, yeah, on available on our website, um, forensic.architecture.org and also at the Banco. Mm, very good. Very, I, I have to, before we move on to the Palacio de Justicia, because it's Uraba, and that's what we're talking about right now. Did you and you and and your colleagues receive threats? Because it's still a fraught region, and and uh, you know, for the foreseeable future, it will continue to be so. Yeah, we had to do a lot of um, security uh, considerations while working in the area. Um, you know, you you're. You're probably aware that you can never really do anything um, in rural Colombia without the permission of the people who are in charge. So we also had that scenario. Um, and, you know, there, there were certain moments where we were not allowed to do things um, that we needed to do for documentation purposes um, because, you know, the people in charge said no. Imagine it's um, sending up a drone here and there. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Um, we were able to use, um, actually air, uh, balloons, like, uh, we sent up balloons to take, um, aerial photographs. So balloons were okay, but a drone was not okay. Um, I don't know if they realized that they basically achieved the same thing, but, uh, it's balloons maybe look a bit more fun. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, the, the area is very, very heavily surveilled, um, you know, there was one moment where um, myself and a colleague from the Truth Commission went out to do some some filming, um, and you know, we were we were spotted within two minutes by someone on a motorcycle who then asked who we were and what we were doing, um, and you know, it's 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 not a place you can just go. So you you do have to um, be very uh, aware and also not just aware for yourselves but more aware for the you know the campesino communities that we were working with because they're the people who have to stay there and you know keep living there so the whole thing was very much coordinated as to the comfort levels um the security concerns of each community that we were working with yeah definitely so i i uh God, I think we could talk about this for hours, but we need to cover a couple a couple of other things here because very timely right now, the Palacio de Justicia. So for those of you who don't know, the sort of the main law courts, let's say, uh, the Palacio de Justicia, which is right there on the Plaza Bolivar in Bogota, it was taken, it was a toma, it was a taken by the M19 guerrillas on the November 6th, 1985. It, they, they stormed it, and then there was a subsequent military operation to take it back uh there were around 100 deaths just under i think around 100 deaths but in recent days uh there is now an entity that will that has presented a court case or a legal case against a former colombian soldier general luis alfonso plazas vega and you will have read of this in some in various uh news outlets he was in charge of, uh, I think, the Batallón de Caballería when, of course, they, they stormed the palace. And there's a court case coming up because he now lives in Florida, so it will come up in Florida. That's why they can do it. And it's it's a result, I think, to achieve domestic truth-telling as a result of the, 
I don't know if it's the Truth Commission or the transitional justice process because people who the military claimed were killed in crossfire or in the legitimate storming to take back the courts, the Palace of Justice back from the M19, it's very likely that they were killed deliberately, let's say deliberately, is, I don't know how best to put it, um, by the military themselves. It, it, the, the court case suggests, and I, I'm, I'm, I'm treading very carefully with language, that in this case, the magistrate, Carlos Horacio Uran Rojas, was tortured and then killed by the military. Possibly, is it because they believe sort of guerrilla sympathies or leftist sympathies? Tell us, anyway, I'm, in Hannah, I'm rambling. You tell us about the investigation that you've done. Yeah, so this was another case which, um, when it was proposed to us, there was a large intimidation that, that occurred also because of the sheer um, volume of research, legal work, um, you know, everything from documentaries to art installations to, you know, many countless theses that have been written about this case in Colombia. Um, so we were very aware of the of the immensity of it and you know also wanting as well as, as in Oroba to to bring something new to to the understanding of this case um and so for that reason um we chose to not focus on the actual toma um that is you know what happened inside of the the, the palace um but instead to focus about the crime of enforced disappearance that occurred in the aftermath. Um, so really the, the case actually starts um, in the exterior. Um, it starts in the Plaza de Bolivar um, and it continues um, as does the crime of enforced disappearance um, in the city of Bogota itself. So we, we kind of follow the trajectories of um, the people who were, um, forcibly disappeared uh, throughout the city, um, mainly into uh, different military installations. Um, one in particular uh, uh, in the north called the Cantan Norte, where the Escuela de Caballería, which is um, where General Plazas Vega was the, um, you know, the, he ran that, that space um, during the, that time of the siege. So we, we focus actually on that space in particular um, because, you know, when we when we did the evaluation of the immense amount of materials available, we actually, you know, we had to also choose like we, you know, you can't, you know, you could you could have you could have chosen very many different um, military installations to focus on. But, but because this is this was a time sensitive project and we didn't have, you know, the next 20 years to. To work on it, um, we had to choose. So, so we did end up choosing that space because we found that um, there was evidence of the most people being taken there. Um, but I can talk a little bit about that later. But I, you know, and and I think quoted in in a lot of this uh, is these reports that have come out this week is Xiomara Uran, who is uh, the magistrate's daughter. And, and just an anecdotal thing, we walk our dogs together. I know Siomara reasonably well. <laughs> so, um, but it's it's just such a, you know, again, it's so gripping to be able to look at this from a different situation, a different angle. And also with the court case, we don't know when it's going to be called for, I don't think. Uh, how, would, how does your investigation affect the court case? Will Will they be taking your your findings and using it as like an expert witness? So our findings at this point are public. Um, and that means that, uh, you know, anyone can can use the findings of our project for their own investigations, for their own research. Um, you know, we also, um, you know, along with our films, we, we publish a lot of our, our actual like data mining of the, of the, information that goes behind a project. So there's a lot available actually to work with. Um, our project as um, an agreement with the Colombian Truth Commission 
<clears throat> you know, we, we can't have a juridical um, outcome uh, because the Truth Commission is not, um, is, that is not within their mandate. So we, you know, the, the project information can definitely be used in a case. Um, but, uh, you know, at this moment in time, we cannot participate in cases. Of course, in the future, um, you know, when the Truth Commission is not like ceases to be, um, you know, there, there could be some expert witnessing um, and, and aspects like that. But yeah, in, at least in the next six months, that is not possible. Okay. Okay. And, and, and how did you guys, how did you establish that uh, Magistrate Uran, for example, uh, had been kind of summarily executed or tortured or found elsewhere? You know, tell us the story a little bit. So <clears throat> Oran um, is, uh, is one of a group of individuals that we um, basically followed throughout the, the space and time of the siege and, and its aftermath. Um, this group we, we called the Los Especiales, or the Specials, um, because that's what the military called them referred to them as they, they were special or suspects um so they received this kind of category and this categorization actually started within the palacio itself um the military when they started to approach the counter siege they established you know that they had been um developing counterinsurgency um tactics for many years at that point um and they basically initiated a, you know, their their strategy, their tactics when, you know, the M19 guerrilla took over the interior space. And one of those techniques is that, you know, you have to basically determine who is who is an enemy combatant and who is not. And to do this, they, um, you know, formed these um, these kind of spaces, these kind of um, you know makeshift spaces, let's say which um, are referred to as filters of control. And, you know, to pass through these filters, there were various filters in both in the actual space of the plaza, but also outside in the exterior, in the different installations of the military, in hospitals, in the morgue. Um, you know, they, they would use those spaces to um, interrogate, um, categorize and decide who, you know, they would consider as subversive or not. So um, in the case of Oran, Oran um, came out of the um, uh, the palace uh, at about 2.19, according to our video analysis in the afternoon, um, on the 7th of November. And he's visibly wounded. Um, he's, you know, being helped, um, you know, to, to walk. Um, he's, he's actually jumping on one leg. He, he can't move, and then he's put onto a stretcher and carried by two medics. Um, so, you know, the the initial claim of the of the military um, is that he is killed um, within the space of the palace, and you know, never left. Basically, he's killed in in combat, and you know, they didn't have anything to do with it. But you know what what. Uh, what was very evident, um, also given the videos uh, that caught him coming out, was that this was not the case, right? So um, his his um, wife, uh, you know, basically thought she saw him on the video, you know, the moment that this that the siege occurred. Actually, this was the case with a lot of families that um, whose uh, loved ones were forcibly disappeared or killed. They, they actually... They, many of them saw saw them on on the TV when the events were happening because it was being broadcasted live. Well, not live, with a slight delay, as an that. Um, but like, yeah. So so you know, they 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 thought they had seen them, but then you know, very you know, uh, this is a whole story in and of itself. But those videos basically took a very long trajectory into um, hiding and obscurity. Um, throughout the decades and you know Oran was only kind of officially spotted um, in a video uh, in 2007 I believe when Noticias Uno did their 
did an, an analysis. Um, it's worth it to say that, you know, they did their analysis, um, you know, based on, you know, a few different like cameras available. There were actually a lot of cameras filming at that moment. Um, so the fact that, you know, he's kind of hiding in plain sight is quite significant. Um, to tell you not just like about, about something that's very, very important for us when approaching the issue of forced disappearance is that, you know, these, these are crimes that go like unsolved and thus are continuous crimes for decades, right? And the sheer weight of, you know, impunity and repression that happens um, means that something like, you know, a video, you know, a person that's caught on four different cameras um, in kind of plain sight is not actually found for 20 years, right? So what we did, um, you know, given all of this background and all of the, you know, the many, many different legal cases and investigations by journalists that had happened um, solely about Oran, right? Was we, we looked at, we, you know, we got all the available footage that we possibly could. Um, this was around 49 hours of um, footage of the event that we ended up synchronizing um, and, um, and looked at the moment in which he and uh, the others who were forcibly disappeared emerged from the palace um, around, it starts around 2, 2.16 p.m. in the afternoon on the 7th. Um, and we were able to construct their path um, through, uh, through the space into the Casa del Florero, which um, was used as another control point by the military, where a lot of the hostages were brought. Um, and we then rendered this into yeah, 3D space, and we started to analyze the um, formation of the military as they were also working with different um, institutions uh, during the event, especially um, as they were working with undercover um, agents um, and, you know, different, um, especially medics, um, you know, different state institutions that were present there. So with Oran's case specifically, um, he's being carried um, by two medics um, through the space. And, and what we were able to do is actually trace him um through space um, longer than uh, anyone had ever seen before, um, including the family. Um, they were quite shocked when we showed, that we showed them actually where you lose sight of him. Um, so you lose sight of Oran basically in front of the Casa Florero doorway and um, the back of an ambulance. And you lose sight of him basically 38 minutes before he's supposedly discovered inside of the Palacio shot. Um, so he was found, uh, well, according to his death certificate um, at 3 p.m. Um, inside the, inter in the internal patio of the palace. I think patio in English is the courtyard. Um, yes. So they, th that's where he's found. And, you know, our kind of, you know, trajectory of him, basically, we can point him, we can put him there with certainty um, at that point in time. And then that's where we lose sight of him, basically. Um, so there is, you know, a question of which path he took, like, um, did he enter into the Casa del Ferrero? There are military testimony, there are testimonies that put him inside that space. Or was he put into the ambulance? And is that where he was tortured? Um, and killed and then dropped back into the palace um, 40 minutes later. Um, you know, given that time frame, um, which is not a lot, um, you might assume that it might be the, the ambulance, but, you know, really we can't say with, with certainty. The, the truth hopefully will out in the court case. Uh, <laughs> hopefully the, there will be some sort of... I have no closure to this this quite heinous uh, uh, situation for the family themselves. I, I find it, you know, that that you could explain that there was a, a gap of the 38, 40 minutes between him leaving and then sort of the Florero, the Casa Florero, is just, it's unbelievable. It's unbelievable to be able to find that. And as you said, there's the 45, 49 
uh, hours of, of, of images that you were able to locate. Now I'm going to, I don't, I mean, it's, it's, it's so thorough and so important this work uh, and you are unearthing things that are going to make a lot of people uncomfortable. And, and so I, I'm glad you're not in Colombia right now. <laughs> it's the truth, I have to say. I'm going to do something that I haven't done before on the podcast because, the let's say, the regular listeners, this will be, you know, the podcast ends here, episode 413. But for my Patreon listeners... We're going to continue just a little bit more because I, I know that Hannah's very busy. We're going to continue a little bit more outside of this. And if you become a Patreon, you'll have exclusive, exclusive access to this next section. And I'd like to talk about uh, the, dis- uh, the disappearance and the killing of, of Lucas Villa uh, after, during the demonstrations in uh, Pereira the Paro Nacional in 2021, because there's so many unanswered questions about this period. So this is where we'll cut off for regular listeners. And so that's it from us here at Columbia Calling this week on episode 413. I hope you found this as enlightening as I have. I mean, truly a fascinating topic, this forensic architecture. And of course, thank you to Hannah Mazaros Martin for her time. Now, to those of you who are Patreon supporters or Kofi supporters, now just jump over to those platforms and up there you'll find the link or, or the audio file to the final segment. This has been Columbia Calling. I've been Richard McCall. Thank you again for listening. Tax day is coming. Oh, no. But if you sign up for Robinhood Gold's IRA with a 3% match, you can get up to $195 for the 2023 tax year. Oh, yeah. Sign up at Robinhood.com slash boost by tax day to get the biggest contribution match on the market. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Robinhood Financial LLC, member SIPC.